0: Hmm. what's Geogram? I don't know. Maybe it's Geogram? How about Geogram? With A.L. Wicks. Or is it Al Wicks? Just call me Ali. And it's Geogram. Welcome to Geogram, the podcast that combines the geography and grammar of the English language. I'm your host, fantasy and young adult author A.L. Wicks. On this podcast, we're filling in the map of the English language with a treasure trove of grammar rules and fascinating facts. You can always find the show notes and transcripts at plopletop.com slash geogram. Hello, podcast listeners. This is our very first official episode, and I wanted to start with the words that give this podcast its name, geography and grammar. We'll discover which one has a longer history and deeper roots than most people think, and which one has a definition that has expanded way beyond what it started as. This podcast is structured so that the vast majority of it will consist of interesting and educational discussions on the English language, typically in two parts, one to cover the gram section and one to cover the geo section. About once a month I'll give a quick personal update where I'm at with my writing and any other pertinent details or fun things that I've been up to, but that's not the main focus of this podcast. So It may happen once a month or it might be every six weeks or so. Uh, And also, I'd like to include a few things about news from the book world. Uh, I'll put it at the end of any episode where I include it. If that's the section you're most interested in, I'll make a note of it in the show notes and include a timestamp so you can skip straight to it. Today, I have a couple pieces of news that go back to June, but I really wanted to have a chance to talk about them a little. So I've kept them in the lineup, especially a bit about the Kindle Vella. More on that in a bit. My aim is to make this a weekly podcast, at least until the end of the, the this year, 2021, for our first podcast season. Then I might need a break. I don't know. We'll just have to see. I am a busy wife and, and a homeschooling mom, uh, as well as a writer and a researcher, and I... <laughs> I know that no matter how much I think I can do in one week, I do have a finite amount of time and I do need to actually sleep, but we've been working hard to get a good system established, so I think it just might work, and I'm really excited about this podcast. I mean, I already have more episodes planned out than what I can fit into a whole year of weekly shows, so I think it's time to jump in, ready or not. Now, I think that's enough of all the tedious intro stuff. Let's get into some seriously cool things about the English language. The word grammar goes back a lot further than most people think. When I asked a few friends where they thought the word grammar came from or when grammar as a concept started, I was surprised at how many of them assumed it came from the time of Queen Victoria. In a way, it makes sense since her reign was all about creating a a proper royal family with proper habits and roles, and the idea of grammar being a part of that does make sense. Modern English was fully formed by Queen Victoria's time. Other than some minor differences in things like vocabulary and manner of expression, writings from the 1800s feel normal to us. The great vowel shift that turned Middle English into Modern English was considered complete about 300 years before Queen Victoria's time. Scholars date it to right around 1550. Incidentally, Shakespeare was born 14 years later in 1564. That means he would have grown up pronouncing words in about the same way as modern-day English speakers in America. The British accent that we hear in movies like Pride and Prejudice and Miss Potter only came about in the latter 1700s and early 1800s. This contrived accent is known as received pronunciation, in effect because they received their way of speaking from an elocution teacher, which honestly, I don't really like that word very much, and I'm glad we use the word diction now to describe the style or manner in which a person speaks or is taught to speak. The history of the American and British accents is pretty interesting and surprising for many, but we'll save that for another episode. To be precise, the creation and use of grammar and language rules, and I'm putting air quotes around that in case you can't tell, and I'll explain why in just a minute. The creation and use of grammar and language rules goes all the way back to the Greeks. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Greeks were the first ones to write grammars, and they did so in order to study their own literature like the Iliad and the Odyssey. It reminds me of something I was once told in a music theory class. There were a lot of composers before Bach, obviously, but his music hit a particular chord if you'll pardon the pun. After his death in 1750, some people took his work and began to study it and to determine why he used certain chords and not others, why some progressions worked, and why he avoided or rarely used others. For example, it is rare to use parallel fifths because it just doesn't sound right. Things like that had been known intuitively for a long time, but Bach's music was almost mathematically precise, and when they put it all together and studied it, some very clear patterns emerged. These have led to the foundation of much of music theory as it's taught today. And that is, in a way, similar to how grammar was created amongst the Greeks. Once their language was being written down, it became clear that some of it was a particularly good construction of their language, and they wanted a way to study it and find out why it worked so well. And so it happened that grammar rules, again in air quotes, were born from well-written intuitively created works that were later studied, which revealed the best ways in which the Greek language was and could be used. These highest and best ways to write and speak were codified into a set of rules known as grammar. Later, as the Encyclopedia Britannica states, quote, the Alexandrians further developed Greek grammar in order to preserve the purity of the language, end quote. And then Dionysius Thrax wrote The Art of Grammar, which is the first grammar written in the Greek language, which makes it the first grammar of a Western language, according to scholars. And just a note on the name Dionysius, when I looked up the pronunciation to double-check it, it stated that the pronunciation was Dionysius, even though there's not another I after the first S. I've always heard it as Dionysus, but we'll go with the official pronunciation of Dionysius. Dionysius. Many centuries later, Samuel Johnson, an English poet and lexicographer, created a dictionary of the English language, which he's still known for and which is one of the many references I routinely check in my research. Though his was not the first English dictionary, because it was so widely used, it began to give a degree of standardization over large areas where the English language was spoken, at least in Britain. About 40 years later, Noah Webster created a dictionary of the English language that had wide reach in America. And several quotations used in Webster's Dictionary, then and later, were from Samuel Johnson's Dictionary. It was Samuel Johnson who stated that, quote, the rules of style like those of law arise from precedent, which is basically saying the same thing as how grammar came about in the first place. And in the preface to his famous dictionary, he lamented about, quote, the dreams of a poet doomed at last to wake a lexicographer. One gets the feeling that he hoped to influence those who spoke the English language into a more exact conformity, but that in the end, this, the sheer number and usage of words was so vast that the best thing he could do was to define them and hope that by and by, as school children were all taught from the same book, learning the same definitions and pronunciations and spellings, that a degree of standardization would be achieved Perhaps it's just as well that Johnson didn't live to see the rise of received pronunciation amongst his fellow countrymen with their intentional changes in pronunciation and inflection. Later came the Oxford English Dictionary, which many people have heard of, and then in 1998, the first edition of Garner's Modern English Usage was published. In over a thousand pages, Brian Garner provides definitions as well as rating each definition or word usage on its current acceptance in society, which naturally will fluctuate over years and decades. This is all to say that the history of the grammar of English and its predecessors in Greek and a few other in between languages were based on how the best poets and writers wrote the language, and the rules, in quotes, that were developed were meant to teach all English users how to emulate those highest and best examples of the English language. So that's why they're not rules, grammar rules as such, but they are fantastic guides to teach us how to speak and write English in the best way possible, to make our communications as clear as possible and our stories and books as interesting and as as appealing as we can. And that's why English grammar is so important and fascinating. (laughs) I just wanted to make a quick note in between our two educational sections that we do have a Patreon set up for this podcast. You can visit it at patreon.com geogram. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash g-e-o-g-r-a-m. Even a pledge as small as a dollar a month will help us make sure we get this podcast rolling and make it as high quality as we possibly can. As a homeschooling teacher mom, I'm hoping there will be lots of parents who find this to be educational value for their kids and themselves. Another way you can help us get a good start is to leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. And thank you. And now, on to the backstory of geography. According to author Will Durant in Our Oriental Heritage, the earliest meaning of what we now call geography referred to the different minute shapes formed by soil particles with the prefix geo, which means shape. The math discipline of geometry basically means shape measuring. As people looked about them and wondered at the larger shapes and formations of the earth and rocks around them, the definition of geography slowly began to include the description and study of the land in general, the rock layers and geological events that presumably created what we see around us today. Just as the physical landscape slowly changes and evolves under certain pressures or through various events, so has the English language. Not only that, but the shaping of the English language over time has been influenced by the climate of places, the foods that can be grown from the earth, the structures that can be built with the resources available, and the impact of the weather and seasons. The words we use and the way we put them together in coherent sentences is a direct result of places and times that have led to the current construct of the languages that are spoken, including the English language. I'll just give you a few quick small examples. For those who grew up in Northern California, they almost invariably pronounce almonds as almonds. It is presumed that this is due to the influence of French settlers from Canada, the French word for almond being amande. In Northeast America, there's a season between winter and spring called mud season. It's that time of year when it's not quite cold enough to prevent the snow from melting and the ground soaks it up but doesn't dry out. So you get continual mud. In New Mexico, there's no use of the term mud season, though they get sandstorms and monsoons. And there are place names like Tucumcari, based on its influence from Native American groups like the Comanche, who used to reside in the area, as well as Spanish phrases like mañana, which are used so frequently that they've practically become yet another word adopted into the English language. Business Insider has a great video on the influences of European, African, Latin, and other languages on the way English is spoken across America, from... Holland, England, Germany, France, Spain, Eastern Europe, Italy, Sweden, Ireland, with distinctions between Ireland and Ulster, Ireland, West Africa, Mexico, and French Canadian. And that's just in America. If you think about Australia and its influences from English and Irish settlers and its location with eastern islands around it, Um, If you think about India with its local dialectical accents influencing the way English is spoken there and the words added to English sentences to give flavor and added meaning, English really isn't just that English language anymore. Beyond the regular use of the term geography, there's also historical geography, which encompasses what people often call social studies about people, past and present, their cultures, their languages, their food. For instance, in A Dictionary of Victorian Slang, published in 1909, People of Connecticut were called wooden nutmegs because of the habit of some traders to carve pieces of wood to look like nutmegs and mix them in with real nutmegs to defraud their customers. People from Colorado were called rovers because of their perceived habit of continually moving from one area to another to another as they prospected for gold. And a South Carolina cracker is described in great and hilarious detail, while the people of Kentucky were known as corn crackers. So many of our words and phrases that we use to describe how we're feeling or what we've experienced come from geographical terms. We could be underwater or trying to keep our heads above water. We could be up a creek or up a crick, as most people say where I grew up in Idaho, or over the hill. Perhaps you finally think you're out of the woods or you'll cross that bridge when you come to it. Perhaps that ship has sailed or you need to find a way to break the ice. Whether it's ice or hills or creeks or woods or shapes of soil particles or mountains and rocks, the geography we see around us and our relation to it has helped us understand ourselves, has created our cultures and languages, and has shaped words and phrases in the English language in more ways than one. I'm going to give just a really quick update on my my writing. Uh, I'm at different stages of four different projects right now, plus writing these podcast episodes and blog posts, um, which has taken up quite a bit of time. But my main focus, of course, is the second book in the Gallon Parker series. There's an enormous amount to plot out and points to hit for that series, so it gets the most time and attention. I'm just over the halfway mark of the second book at least presumably, though the book is pretty much entirely plotted out at this point, and I have semi-worked up outlines for books three and four. I wanted to make a quick note on the cover of the first book because it's getting an update. For now, the red cover will continue to be available, but more as a collector's item. Plopletop Publishing commissioned a new cover to be created, and I've seen it, and I absolutely love it. I know they're currently getting it up for pre-orders on Amazon. Um, I think the official release date is early November. I I think it may even be November 1st, which is a Monday. Now for some news. And just as a note, I did first record this on June 15th, 2021, but because of audio issues and trying to get the microphone situation sorted out, I am re-recording it now. And even though this news is a few weeks old, I still wanted to include just a couple of things. First, I wanted to take a second to note the passing of Scholastic CEO, Dick Robinson. Like many of my generation, I grew up with Scholastic book fairs occurring at regular intervals at my elementary school. I didn't even know at the time that Scholastic was a book company, but I loved the word Scholastic because it meant I could take my own earnings to school and bring home a brand new book that was all mine. So when I heard that the CEO of Scholastic, Dick Robinson, died on June 5th at the age of 84... I wanted to just make a mention of it and say thank you to all the publishers who make the effort to publish books for kids and teens. Now for a bit about the Kindle Vella. Some of you may have heard about it, though there's a good chance that many of you haven't. I I find the news about Kindle Vella really interesting. For one thing, I didn't hear anything about it until the announcement came out about its release. I did a focused keyword search of Kindle Vella via Google, and only one, as in a single page of news stories in English, came up about the Kindle Vella in mid-June. So unlike a lot of other Amazon announcements where they talk about a future rollout of a big item or program, this one seems to have only been announced upon its release, and not very loudly either. I don't know if that's intentional for one reason or another, but I do find it a bit interesting for its anomaly. And just as a quick note, there are a lot of articles about Kindle Vela on other websites and blogs now, especially those that talk about the book industry, my search was specifically for its mention on larger news outlets. And just as an added proof of how new and rather quiet this all is, there is not even a Wikipedia note about the Kindle Vella yet, even though the Amazon Kindle article contains over 11,000 words and was last updated on June 2nd and doesn't contain a single mention of the Kindle Vella. Kindle Vella is something that Amazon is doing that allows authors to publish books one chapter or section or episode at a time, and that allows readers to purchase and read books or serials one episode or chapter at a time. Obviously, some authors will choose to take fully completed books and put them on Kindle Vella, releasing each chapter in a serial format. However, a quick look around the Kindle Vela topic on the Amazon KDP site makes it clear that Amazon is indeed providing a way for authors to write and release a book a chapter at a time. The beginning chapter is released before the ending is finished. Under the Kindle Vela page, and I'll put links to it in the show notes and transcript um, in case you're interested in going there and seeing for yourself, the top section is publish an episode, which is a link where you go to publish episodes one at a time. The second link on that page is update an episode. Reading further down the page, it's interesting to note that it says you can edit a published episode at any time, but once an episode is live, you can't delete it. I suppose if you ever did want to basically delete an episode, you would just edit it down to a single letter or a word or a sentence. But as of right now, any episode that is published will be permanently part of your KDP account. I've had a bit of a think about the Kindle Bella. And I think what might be happening that is that Amazon is trying to provide a professional, meaning a money-making outlet, for young or young-ish writers who have grown up writing and reading fan fiction. The only writers I know of who are currently publishing like this are fanfic writers. But I do hope that it will open up an avenue for kids and teenagers to start writing and doing some self-publishing, to get some feedback, do more writing, because I think that any way we can encourage kids to read and write more is a good thing. I really don't think the Kindle Bell way of publishing is something that any of the big publishers will choose as a way to release books, though, because obviously with the kind of money a publisher puts out to get a book to market, they have to be sure that a book is going to work before it's released, and they really can't do that until it's fully written at the very minimum. So this really feels like Amazon is catering to the self-publishing market, particularly those who are currently in their 30s or younger. And just as a note, as I'm recording this at the beginning of August, Kindle Bella is now available on the Kindle iOS app. So I decided to take a look around and see what book chapters or episodes are actually going for on the app. And one thing I really didn't like, um, to make the chapters cost more in tokens based on probably just word count, it just feels like such a nickel and dime tactic. And I just... I have to be honest, I'm really not loving the whole Kindle Vela thing, but I'll keep an open mind about it because I really want to watch this space and see what happens and how Vela evolves over time because I'm sure it will. Now, even though I'm a fantasy writer and I do read the occasional fantasy book, I mostly read nonfiction like histories or biographies, so I took a look at that section and, well, I try to take a look at that section because neither history nor biography are even listed as a category on Vela. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but it does bring home the fact that Kindle Vella is very much geared toward only certain types of books and very much not for other types of books. One other thing that I really, really didn't like at all is that the picture to the left of the book title is a circle. It doesn't look like a book at all. It looks like an avatar. It's an avatar of the book cover, presumably, but it makes the title feel like a social media post or update. It makes it feel like this really isn't a place for real, and again, I have air quotes around that, real books, because they're not being treated or seen, like literally not being visually seen as anything like a normal book. You don't have circle books. Another thing I dislike about books on Kindle Valley is something that is actually something mentioned in the YouTube video put up by Amazon KDP, which they call breaking the fourth wall so you can speak directly to your readers. That's a quote. Essentially, it's a space after each chapter where an author can create author notes to fill in your reader with what's coming or who's important or any other notes an author wants, which as a writer myself sounds like a really bad idea. Just no, 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 no. The moment your reader starts reading notes from the author in the middle of a story or at the end of each chapter, it pulls the reader out of the story and brings them back to the real world. This is just, no, surely not. Really? I scrolled through different books on Bella and I was stunned at how many authors were actually using the author notes. I I seriously wanted to do a facepalm over and over. But then I thought, okay, so maybe they know something I don't know. So I started reading one book that had been favorited or crowned by uh, several readers, and the effect was just as bad as I felt it would be. It was something like, this character is pretty important in the rest of the book, but this other character I just introduced you to will spend a lot of time waiting in the wings and will only be important at the very end. It was seriously like grinding to a mental halt, but I have to remind myself, we're just in the beginning days of Kindle Vela. Eventually the cream will rise to the top and I'm sure authors will find ways to put better and better content on it and readers will share and upvote the best books. And it's going to become a great place to discover new stories and other people who like the same books we do. At least here's to hoping, right? As a side note, Vela is the name of a village in Eastern Switzerland. I don't think that's where Amazon got the name from because another, uh, probably more closely related word, is vellum, which was an animal skin prepared for writing. But my guess is that it actually refers to the word novella, which means a short story. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts, both from the perspective of readers as well as writers. Coming up next time. Where does the word sophomore come from, and why are sophomoric and sophisticated used to mean almost completely opposite things, even though they both start from the same root word? Episode 2 coming soon. Until next time, finish a book, leave a review, and pick up another one. You can find me on social media as alwix or alwix, or you can reach me at alwix at protonmail.com. If you'd like, you can also write to my publisher, Ploppletop Publishing, at contactus at ploppletop.com. And thanks to them for their support. Please take a moment to give this podcast a five-star rating and subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. Our theme song is Time for Supper by Golden Age Radio. All other music and sounds are from Epidemic Sound. If you're unable to find this podcast on any podcast app, please drop us a line and let us know so we can make sure it's as widely available as possible. Transcripts and show notes, including links to all news stories and research I reference, are available at ploppletop.comslash geogram. And thanks for listening.